It is our practice, it's our habit on Sunday mornings here at Gateway to break open the Bible every Sunday because as we said two weeks ago at the beginning of this series, we're convinced that the Bible is the handbook for spiritual renovation. So we break it open and we try to examine it and understand it. Sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult because the understanding is difficult. Sometimes it's difficult because it's culturally so distant from us. We break it open, we try to understand it, we apply it to our lives. We do usually what people who teach in seminaries call expositional preaching. So we take a passage of Scripture and we try to figure out that passage of Scripture and we then try to apply it to our lives. In fact, sometimes we're so serious about this, sometimes we will, a couple of times a year for a a long season, usually, for example, through the whole summer, we'll take one book of the Bible and we will go through it chapter by chapter, try to apply it to our lives. I encourage you to read the Bible yourselves like that. The Bible is really a library. So if you decide that you want to dig into Isaiah, or you feel like God's leading you to to look at Isaiah, break up an Isaiah, and try to figure out the book of Isaiah by going through it as part of the library of the Bible, or Romans, or the Gospel of John. Once in a while at Gateway, we'll depart from that, and we'll do a topical kind of a conversation. We'll pick uh, verses about that topic. Whenever we do that, I try to give you this warning. I give you this warning because, first of all, I think the Bible is the handbook for our spiritual development. Secondly, because you have to be careful. If you read the Bible in that way, this verse, and then overhear this verse, and then overhear this verse, that's not the way it was written, first of all. And second of all, it's not unusual for you to be able to get the Bible to say anything you want it to say. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but Diane and I a couple of weeks ago went to see 12 Years a Slave, and it's a really powerful, a gripping movie about a man who, a black free man who lived in New York who was duped and uh, sold into slavery and spent 12 years as a slave to a couple of different slave owners in Georgia. No spoiler alert, you get that from the trailer. But I was reminded in that movie how a little embarrassing to say, but my forebears used the Bible to justify the practice of slavery. So you can get the Bible to say all kinds of things. That's why we try to be so careful with it. I want you to come in when you come in and listen to me and listen to one another. When we go to small groups, I want you to be forewarned and forearmed. You break this open yourselves and let God's Spirit speak to you, which He will, yourself. So we very careful with the Bible. That's why we preach expositionally. We take a whole passage and we don't take it out of context, except on those rare occasions when we'll pick a topic. And then on even rarer occasions, I'll give a sweeping, big picture look at things. I'm telling you in advance, I think that's even more dangerous. We run the risk of hearing from Ed or hearing from one of you if you're doing it and not hearing from God. So you've been forewarned because that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to take a really big picture view of renovation. What is the renovated life? What are the characteristics of a renovated life? Now we're not going to exhaust that topic, we're really going to kind of introduce it. And today we're going to talk about, we're answering the the what, not the how. We're going to get to the how. We're going to get real practical about you and I living a renovated life, participating with God as He renovates us. But this morning, I want us to look at 
what that is, where we're headed. And I'm going to answer even why we're looking at what it is in our very first point together. Today's one of those conversations that I've honestly prayed that God would grab our attention, frankly, that this wouldn't be boring, because it could have a tendency to be, and this is just critically important. So today we're going to talk about the characteristics of a renovated life, what it looks like, what we're looking for, and what we might end up looking like. Let's go to God in prayer to launch this. So let's pray. And Father, we ask you to help us today. You have cracked our chests with worship, and we want to give ourselves to you, all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. And so I ask God that you would forgive me of my sin, and that you would speak today, and that you would protect us from our own thoughts or my thoughts that would be apart from yours. And God, I pray that you would use these words to prepare us for this meal this morning. I also pray, Lord, that you would use our time to grab our attention and redirect us and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, three big picture characteristics of a renovated life. And then at the very end, briefly, we'll look at a passage of Scripture and we'll start diving in to where we're going to spend a couple of weeks. All right, so uh, three big picture characteristics of a renovated life. Number one, a renovated life starts with the right vision. So this is why we would do a message like this. A renovated life starts with the right vision. In every venture, it's critical to know where you're going if you have any chance of reaching your destination. The same is true of our spiritual lives. We have to have a vision of the positive difference that a connection with God will make to our lives or we'll never pursue such a connection. It's frankly difficult at times. And it's even a hassle. So you have to have a right vision of what a renovated life is going to look like. That's what Jesus did. As a significant part of his ministry, Jesus was constantly casting the right vision. Jesus' main topic. Some of you have heard me say this before, but when I was in seminary 103 years ago, I remember one of the most profound moments in seminary class. This is a bunch of really earnest, mostly young men, few young women. We're studying to be seminary professors or go back and teach religion in college. And most of us are studying to be pastors one day. And we're serious about this religion business. And we know a lot, most of us, or we think we do. We've read the Bible a bunch. We've read other books. We're pretty proud of it. We have them at home in our library. This is when you actually used to have books. And we go into seminary class one day, and this professor stands up and he says, what do you think was Jesus' main topic in his ministry? It's a little intimidating question. But there are a few brave people, most of them who love to hear themselves talk, raise their hands, love! Great answer, wrong. Just based on the volume of what he talked about, what do you think was Jesus' main topic? Prayer! Good answer, no. There were several other offerings, and then he throws a big screen. This was when we used acetates. We didn't even have PowerPoint. A big word up on the screen. Kingdom of God. In fact, you take the second, third, and fourth most popular topics of Jesus added together. One of those is money. You take those added together, it doesn't equal the number of times that he talked about the kingdom of God. This was Jesus' main topic. He was constantly casting vision about it. There are at least five parables in a quick count that I did about the nature of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is like a man throwing seed. Kingdom of God is like a tree. There are at least three more parables or sayings about what it means to live as part of the kingdom of God. 
it's like being a little child. And this is just in the Gospel of Luke alone. And then that's not just the positive statements he made, like the kingdom of God is among you. These are descriptions, characteristic stories, parables, casting vision about what it looks like. Not only did he offer a positive vision, but negatively. He corrected faulty visions many times, repeatedly. He would instruct them that the way they were approaching God or the way that they had been told to worship Him simply would not work. Once he was questioned about the behavior of his disciples, he replied, look, Isaiah was right about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He would repeat that message in a variety of ways. It's about your heart. It's not just about what you say. It's not the practice of religion. It's the transformation of the heart. Over and over again, Jesus was casting vision. Follow me. This is the way to go. Sometimes our religion doesn't work for us. It doesn't allow for renovation. We're frankly not changing because we have a wrong vision. So we start in the wrong place and we aim in the wrong direction. Pardon me. I'm going to read you a couple of paragraph lengthy quote from Dallas Willard who says this better than I can and he's just making this point more elaborately with bigger words. Listen to what Dr. Willard says. He says, and here, in a nutshell is the explanation of the widespread failure to attain Christian maturity among both leaders and followers. Got my attention. This is the explanation of why we don't mature. Those who are Christians by profession, and seriously so, we must add, not just people who, oh yeah, I was raised in the church and it means nothing. Seriously so. Today, usually do not have the vision that would enable them to routinely progress to the point where what Jesus himself did and taught would be the natural outflow of who they really are on the inside. We just don't routinely progress to the point where what Jesus did and what he taught is what flows out of us from the inside. I don't know about you, but I look at that and I go, wow, is that even the goal? (laughs) That what Jesus did and taught would be me. And it is the goal. Willard goes on. That's why today you find many professing Christians circling back to non-Christian sources to resolve the problems of their inner life. Instead of inward transformation, some outward form of religion, often today even called a spirituality, is taken or imposed as the goal of a practical endeavor. Dr. Willard. All right, so what is the vision? You've got to have a vision. What is the vision we're looking for? What was the vision that Jesus unveiled? Second big picture characteristic. The renovated life is a life in which God, what God ultimately wants done is done. That's going to mean a whole lot more than you're thinking. But just remember that. The renovated life is a life in which what God ultimately wants done is done. This is the vision we're looking for. And this is where it starts. The best definition I've ever heard of Jesus' phrase, kingdom of God, was given by George Eldon Ladd. He was a New Testament scholar in the 20th century. And interestingly, he had a special emphasis in his ministry on end times stuff. He said this. I'm going to repeat this a couple of times so you can get it. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will, where what God wants done is done. The kingdom of God is the range. It's the territory 
of God's effective will where what God wants done is done. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will where what God wants done is done. This is what Jesus meant when he used the phrase. So let's do a spiritual exercise real quick. Some spiritual aerobics. Stand with me if you would. And let's say together the Lord's Prayer. I know that most of you have church in your background. You'll be very familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Those of you who grew up Catholic, you can say it in your sleep. I'm going to put it on the screen. For those of you who do not have a church background and don't know the words, we use kind of an old school version, usually here at Gateway. And today, I want you to do something unusual. We're going to actually say the Lord's Prayer twice. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to bow our heads, say the Lord's Prayer, and do it religiously like we usually do. Then we're going to say it together from the screen and look at it. And I want you to dial in and notice what you're saying. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Jesus' day, he was not the only person using the phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, it wasn't this overwhelmingly popular phrase, but for decades at least, this phrase had become somewhat common currency in religious circles of Jesus' day, and it was almost always laden with pretty heavy political expectations, as you might expect from a phrase like kingdom of God. And of course it meant you know righteousness and justice is what's going to happen, but that was always defined in terms of Israel reestablishing itself and becoming again what it had become under King Solomon's day and even more. God's going to do that. Forget those old dirty Romans. God's going to raise up the kingdom of God. Jesus came along, and of course there were others who knew that was a ridiculous hope, and they would dismiss entirely all conversation about the kingdom of God. Jesus came along and co-opted the phrase and gave it a very, very different meaning and By doing so, in a startling way, he cast a vision for what it means to follow God and have a renovated life. So now with eyes wide open, let's read the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to call this the prayer of a renovated life. So let's read together. Our Father, stop. Teach us how to pray, Jesus. He gave them this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what the kingdom is like. The kingdom's like a seed. You plant it, it explodes, and it offers. Birds of the air can come and nest. It's a little itty-bitty seed, and it grows, and bam! There's great effect. Kingdom of God's like a little child. Absolutely dependent. Feed me. Crying and screaming. Can't do anything for itself. Kingdom of God is like a man... Goes out and scatters seed. Some of that seed dies. It always does. Some of it's plucked away. But some of it grows and it becomes a fruit. Hundredfold. Kingdom of God. Over and over again. Casting vision. And here he says, pray this. Pray that God's will, God's reign, God's absolute desire will happen 
on earth, even as it is in heaven where it happens perfectly. That is an explosive prayer. We've gone way past politics. We've affected every area of life, including our innards. Let's go on. Say it like you mean it. You may be seated. So, when God wants us to learn patience, we learn it. When God wants us to become more loving, we become more loving. When God wants us to be slowed down by cancer, we're slowed down by cancer. When God wants us to learn dependence by losing our job, we learn dependence. We don't grow bitter. We don't despair. We learn dependence. This is what the kingdom of God is. Where what God wants is what happens in our lives. When God wants us to be healed from cancer, we're healed from cancer. When God wants to try us and press us down so that we learn how to be more radically leaning on Him, then when we are pressed down, we more radically lean on Him. We don't look for other solutions. When God wants us to learn kindness, we learn kindness and we receive those lessons from Him and we grow in kindness. What God wants done is what is done. That's the kingdom of God. A life renovated is a life in which what God wants done is done. We agree. So why is this God's vision for us? Why is that what a renovated life looks like? Okay, well, I'd like to suggest that we're not great at knowing our own happiness. And even when we know it, we often don't pursue it. I don't know if you've read this, but a few years ago, Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert wrote a book called Stumbling on Happiness. And Gilbert just marshaled several decades of research about happiness. And they have, social scientists have been researching happiness very, very actively since probably the 1950s, and mostly in the United States population, but not only. They've done How Happy Are You surveys internationally and found by the way, incidentally, that the United States is nowhere near the happiest country. I think Finland is. The, the key is to be freezing all the time. But Gilbert marshals several decades of research to make the point that our belief about what will make us happy is often wrong. He cites a large and growing body of research to make the point that the present Ed Allen is often not very good at predicting what the future Ed Allen will really want. Reams of studies. For instance, you know, lottery winner studies. And how happy they are now, how happy they are 10 years later. And then surveying wide swaths of the population about how happy they think winning the lottery will make them. But many, many different kinds of survey. We are better, listen to this, we are better when what God wants is what happens. We're better. We're happier in the long run when what God wants is what happens. As opposed to what we want. A renovated life is a better life because it's a life in which what God wants done is done. We agree with God. Third, the renovated life is a life in which all aspects of our spiritual life are expanding. The renovated life is a life in which all aspects of our spiritual life are expanding. So last week, we said that transformation, change, renovation is not only possible, it's actually expected. We did one of those expositional sermons on a passage in Ephesians, and we looked at how growth 
corporately and personally, is the expectation of God's activity among us. But the job is not finished. It never is finished. The job of renovation is not finished. One drop-in-the-bucket example of this would be if we take the life of the Apostle Paul. Some of you know Paul wrote, you know, by some estimates, two-thirds of the New Testament. I say by some estimates because there are some, some books that we don't know whether or not Paul wrote, probably did, but don't know for sure. But by some estimates, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He may be the most influential Christian voice in the history of the Christian church. And yet, if we look at the Apostle Paul's writings, and his writings are the letters, the little things in the you know, back half of the New Testament, there's a progression in Paul's letters. Listen to this, and I don't think this is just incidental. I don't think this is poetic license on Paul's part. I think this tells us something about his heart. In a letter to the Corinthians, to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth, Paul, talking about himself, this is very early in his ministry, Paul says that he is the least of all the apostles. And you have to read that and go, what? Paul, that is unnecessary humility. You wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You're not the least of all the apostles. But Paul sees himself, really, as the least of all the apostles. Later in his ministry, he's writing a letter to a group of Christians in Ephesus. He says this to them, I'm the least of all the saints. Come on, Paul. (laughs) You're going overboard. But I think Paul is growing in his understanding of himself in light of God. He is working on me to be like Jesus. And as he grows in his understanding of that, I think he's looking far less at people like us. And he's looking more and more at that. And he's saying, holy smokes! At the end of his ministry, he's in prison, he's writing his disciple Timothy, and he says, I am the worst of sinners. The business of renovation is never done. In Paul's kind of summa theological, in his seminal work in which he does, I think, a more thorough job of laying out his whole understanding and his theology, In the book of Romans, at one point in Romans chapter 7, Paul lapses into a personal testimony and he says this, look, what I want to do, I can't do. And the thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I keep doing. What a wretched man I am. Of course, he's able instantly to fall on the grace of God as it's been shown itself in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Thank God, I'm saved. This body of wretch has been saved. Therefore, now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. But he only gets to that point after recognizing, I'm a mess, and I'm still a work in progress. If we cling to him, and as we cling to him, Paul says we are renewed, his word. Paul says we are being changed, his word. We are being transformed. We are being renovated, our word. The renovated life is a life in which all aspects of our spiritual life are expanding. The job isn't done. We're growing. This means it's critical that we are experiencing spiritual growth and inner transformation. It sounds incredibly redundant to say, but bear with me. It sounds redundant to say that we will not be experiencing renovation unless we're growing. In other words, what I'm really saying is we won't be growing unless we're growing, but we need to say it. Because it was a point that was never lost on Jesus. 
Let me carve into that a minute. For Jesus, it was never about a destination point. For Jesus, it was about a journey. Jesus knew that the secret involved seeking and asking and knocking. That's not New Age stuff. That's Jesus. Jesus affirmed that perspective on life. He was always affirming those who seemed clueless and distant whenever they showed movement toward God. Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, thief on the cross, come to mind. But he consistently denounced those who were seeped in the practice of religion when they didn't show movement toward God. For Jesus, it wasn't so much about where you're standing as where you're moving, the direction you're pointing in. I'm sorry, but I've got to offer a football analogy. This afternoon, the New England Patriots will beat the Denver Broncos, and as they do so, you'll notice that is it better to be on your own 15-yard line 85 yards away from the end zone you're trying to get to? Or is it better to be on the 50-yard line, only 50 yards away from the end zone you're trying to get to? Let me restate it again to just show how ridiculous the question is. Is it better to be on your own 15-yard line, just 15 yards away from your own goal in disaster, 85 yards away from the opponent, or is it better to be on the 50-yard line, only 50 yards away from the end zone you're trying to get to, and even if you have a turnover, it's not horrible, you're at midfield. And I would guarantee you, it depends. If you're second and five on your own 15-yard line versus third and 35 on the 50-yard line, I'll take second and five on the 15-yard line. Because we're moving in the right direction. We're going to get a first down in these next two downs. Third and 35, we're punting. We're turning the ball over. It's about movement. I had someone visit my office recently who was earnestly intent on seeking. Serious about finding, but not yet decided about some of the basic tenets of the faith. And I couldn't say enough positive things about where this person was spiritually. And I'm convinced that Jesus would have done the same thing. The renovated life is a life in which all aspects of our spiritual life are expanding. And when they begin to retract, it doesn't matter if you're on the 50-yard line. If your heart is retracting, if your spiritual life is sinking and receding, Even if you're on the 50-yard line, you're not in a good place. What do I mean by aspects of our spiritual life? Renovated life is a life in which all aspects of the spiritual life are expanding. What do I mean by all aspects of the spiritual life? And let's kind of wrap up with this. Let me take an everyday example from my life. There are different aspects to my life. I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a father. And it just mentions a few. So I stand in different kinds of relationships with different categories of people. There are different relational aspects to my life. The same is true in our spiritual lives. So, in our spiritual lives, relationally, we face up toward God. We face in toward one another. And we face out toward a people who are far from God whose lives are disconnected, and they stand little hope of genuine and ultimate transformation and renovation. So today, and for a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the first dimension. 
we will be growing. If we are in a renovated life, we will be growing in our love and worship of God. We will be growing in our love and worship of God. Look, let's make sure we're awake. We're going to say that together. We're going to say we will be growing in our love and worship of God because that's fundamental. One, two, three. We will be growing in our love and worship of God. Yes, as I suspected, we're half asleep. So I want you to hear a passage that will be really, really familiar to many of you. Mark chapter 12, verses 28, and I'm going to read all the way down through verse 34, I think it is, but you will only have the giddy up on the screen. So I'm in Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading in verse 28 to give you the setup. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, Jesus and some of the Pharisees, noticing that Jesus had given a good answer. He asked him, Jesus, and these are the kind of things that people would routinely ask rabbis in Jesus' day. Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? I've said to you before, I'm surprised Jesus answered that question. Usually he sort of teased that kind of thing, but he gives a very direct answer because evidently for Jesus, he recognizes this is a big one. Number one, this guy's really seeking. Number two, he's asked the right question. Because so many other times these bozos ask the wrong question. That guy's asked the right one. So Jesus says, this is the most important one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. So we want to underscore that today. That's what we're going to spend our last couple of minutes on. But I'm going to read ahead. He gives a second one as well. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In another version of this, Jesus says, this summarizes all the law and the prophets. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, this is the questioner saying. And to love your neighbor as yourself, that's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And maybe he's getting it. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, listen to this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's really... You're getting close. That's really good. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. We must be growing in our love for God and our worship of Him. I've said this many, many times at Gateway. I think we have faithfully communicated this concept to one another. It's part of our mission. Up toward God in worship, we say. But as long as this remains a concept alone, we will be far away from the kingdom of God and we will not experience the profound renovation that God is offering us. We can stand on the 50-yard line and fully understand it. Yeah, that's Gateway's mission statement. Yes, there are a lot of places in Scripture where that's talked about. Awesome, I get it. We can be standing on the 50-yard line, but if we are third and 35, we're in trouble. This must begin as a settled matter in our minds. We must grasp the vision of what God is and what He offers us, of course. We must agree that all of our deepest longings can only be satisfied by our being renovated by His mighty work in our lives. We must understand this. We must get the concept and we must agree. It must become a settled matter in our minds, a firm decision. And our understanding of this concept and our agreement with it must be expanding. But it cannot stay there. Love is also a matter of the will. If we're growing in our love for God, it's a matter not only of a settled decision, it's a matter of the will. 
It's a matter of choosing and acting in one way and not another. So as I love Diane, my wife, I will choose to be kind toward her. I will choose my words carefully with Diane and with patience. I will not keep a record of wrongs with Diane. I will not be easily angered with her. I will trust her and protect her and persevere with her. I will choose one way of acting and not another if I love her. So it is in my relationship with God. I will choose to live one way and not another. I will choose to spend time with Him. I will find ways to connect to Him and to listen to Him and to be in His presence. I will find ways to connect and as I do, I will suspend my doubt. I will suspend my doubt. I won't cheat my doubt. I won't forget it. I won't run over it. But I'll doubt my doubt at least as fiercely as I doubt anything about God. I'll give Him the benefit. I'll follow His ways. I'll put my hope in Him. I'll learn about Him from people who seem to know Him and offer a model that I can relate to. It will be a settled matter in my mind and I will choose it in the way I live. And finally, I'll offer my heart to Him. I'll bring my desperation to Him. I'll bring my longing to Him. I'll look to Him for my satisfaction and my joy. I will place my heart and my delight in His direction. In short, I will grow in my love and worship of God. That's what it looks like to be a renovated life. And that kind of practice is the engine for renovation. We find our hearts increasingly transformed into that which represents Jesus. And as we do so, that then bubbles out to the surface of our lives and we begin to look like Him more and more and more. So what we want to do this morning is to make confession. First negatively and then positively. We want to do this this morning in response to this. And we want to do this this morning in preparation for the meal that we have before us. This is a mercy meal, so you're invited. If you can participate in this meal in your setting, if you're in another church, you can participate here. Welcome. If you are wondering this morning if you deserve to do this because you're feeling shame or guilt, you're feeling burdened this morning, and you're wondering if you deserve this, I can help you with that. You do not deserve this. But we don't come to this because we deserve it. We come to this because we're at His mercy and we are being changed. We are being transformed. I want you to stand with me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess this morning that we have sinned against You in thought and word and deed. We remember our weak Lord and we bring to You the stain of our selfish thoughts, our overly angry thoughts, our untrusting thoughts, our lustful thoughts, our greedy thoughts. We bring to you our deeds, Lord, the deeds of our feet, the deeds of our hands, the deeds of our words. We've been angrier than we had a right to be, and we ask you to forgive us. We have sought our meaning our purpose, and our pleasure apart from You. Lord, we've not loved You with our whole heart. It has at times this week not been a settled 
matter for us. We have not chosen you. And we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We ask you to have mercy on us and to forgive us. I want you to stay in prayer, but I want you to make a declaration this morning in your own heart and mind. I want you to declare in your mind, silently, where you are in your decision to love God. Where you are in growing toward Him. Have you found yourself on the 50-yard line at 3rd and 35 or 3rd and 40? Are you on the 15, 2nd and 5? Better yet, are you on the 50, 2nd and 5? Where are you this morning? Bring that to Him and offer it in thanks and gratitude or offer it in confession or offer it in dialogue with Him. This may not be a settled matter for you this morning. That's okay, you're in His presence. I want to encourage you, don't waste this. Use this opportunity to converse with Him. Lord, we come to You this morning with open minds and hearts and with our will. We ask You to help us make good on our confession and our profession. We thank You so much that Your mercy is great, and if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, and you'll forgive them and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Stand in your mercy this morning.